Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast. I'm your podcast host, Peter Ahmad, recording from Cape Town, South Africa, since June 2019. The Talking Transformation podcast provides an open and accessible platform for built environment professionals and interest groups to share their reflections and aspirations relating to the transformation of places and spaces in South Africa. It's intended to be a celebration of the individuals and community groups who are supporting formal and informal processes that are addressing the challenges of South Africa's history and shaping the future of our neighbourhoods and cities. After a lengthy break, the Talking Transformation podcast returns with an in-depth discussion with the members of the Development Action Group's Contractors and Developers Academy team. We explore the genesis of the initiative and how the NGO identified a gap and need to support entrepreneurs and artisans providing affordable rental units in urban areas. This has increasingly been referred to as the small-scale rental market and has expanded the scope, permanence and quality of rental options within the township property sector. The transformation of both the physical space and densities associated with this type of development has grown over the last decade and is increasingly adding options and choices for tenants and households unable to access traditional public sector housing delivery means. With opportunity comes challenges of governance and infrastructure and the team reflects on how the program has evolved to meet the needs of both those identifying opportunities, specifically the developers, and those building the units, the contractors. The enthusiasm and passion of the program director, Kuma Kayose, and project officers Kamachelo Chika and Claudia Hitzeroth is infectious and makes for an engaging introduction to those of you who have not come across this phenomenon before. Our episode marks the first of a series of conversations with those active in the small-scale rental sector. We hope to extend the conversation to program participants and a panel discussion where listeners can ask their own questions to the team. I've worked with this team as an embedded researcher between 2020 and 2021 when I was studying and was completely inspired by the efforts of the team and the potential of the sector. I hope the episode and series inspires our listeners and increases the awareness of the small-scale rental market. So it's just gone two o'clock on the 5th of June here in Observatory, Cape Town. And I'm absolutely delighted to be invited to the Development Action Group here in their offices in Observatory, joined by three of the team members working with the Contractors and the Developers Academy. We've got Kuma, Kamo and Claudia. Absolutely fantastic to be here. It's really nice to be back where I spent a lot of time in these offices over the last 18 months or so. It's been a fantastic journey with you. I'm really hoping that during the course of our conversation today, we can revisit some of the basics of what is the CDA, the Contractors Developers Academy? How is it making a difference in the entrepreneurial market? We hear a lot about small-scale rental and so forth. But before we go any further, Kuma, tell us a bit about yourself and then please introduce the rest of your team here today. Thank you so much, Pete, for having us. I truly appreciate this opportunity to have this conversation with you. And as people are following um, your podcast, so this is an opportunity to engage with you and then spread also the phenomenal work that has been done by DAG as an organization through its Contract and Developer Academy. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation and sharing our experiences. Let me kickstart with the introduction. Uh, my name is Ukuma Giyose. I'm a project coordinator here at DAG. Joined DAG, I think it was in 2018, but prior joining DAG, I was coming from the construction space. I'm a town planner by profession, also a contractor by experience, and then a development facilitator by practice. That is me in a nutshell. I'll let the team introduce themselves. 
Thank you, Guma. Um, Pete, I am honored to be part of um, your podcast, like Guma shared. Um, I've been also listening to it throughout the years. So as Guma has shared, my name is Gamo, but in full it's Gamo Reloshika. I am the project officer for DEG. Uh, so I've joined DEG in 2020. So it was like two weeks before the national lockdown. Um, so yeah, when it comes to my um, educational background, I, sit, I did city and regional planning at UCT and then also with the geographical information systems. Thank you. Hi, Pete. Also great to be here. I'm Claudia Hetzeroth, also a project officer at DAG. Also a uh, self-proclaimed fan of the podcast. <laughs> so thank you very much for having us. I've been at DAG for three years now. I joined shortly after Kamo and have been increasingly involved in the work of the CDA over that time. And by profession, I'm an urban development professional and um, I studied sustainable development and what that looks like for cities of the so-called global south. And right now I'm working in land-based financing and land value capture approaches. The three of you, if ever there was a, a panel of guests to talk about transformation and the experience and the different experience and capacity that you have here, this is certainly the place. I'm really looking forward to getting into the details and understanding, as I say, the CDA, what it's about and how it's contributing within the different markets throughout South Africa. But before we get into that, Kuma, just please, for the benefit of those listeners who've never experienced the Development Action Group, what is it about, what bit of the history, its advocacy role here in the Western Cape and beyond so basically, DAG is a non-profit organization that was established in, I think, in 1986 as a direct response to then dispossession or relocation of communities, in particular at Crossroads. That's where a group of urban professionals from UCT sit together and how do we support communities against this injustice of forced removal. And DAG has been on, I think our focus has been rooted on the ground, providing support to communities, whether through skills development or capacity building, for them to be at the center and drive their own development needs, whether it's within the housing, land issues, that communities drive their own processes, and for us to be a supporting organization and enable them through capacity building initiatives for them to advocate and advance their housing needs. While STAG also focuses providing that support at grassroots level, but we also engage with the different spheres of government in order to enact or put forward policy reforms that actually speaks to the needs of the South African citizens, not in particular, yeah, yeah. As South African citizens. We have been heavily involved in the advocacy, in particular around 1994, with the new democratic South Africa to saying this notion of delivering housing for all. I think we were part of the formulation of the RTP uh, policy as an organization there. We then also engaged with the different spheres of government um, and then testing out the implementation of the RTP program. I think it was also seen late 90s that the actual policy was not speaking about enabling communities to deliver their own houses and then this notion of the people's housing process came through and developing that policy. We were also involved and also developing the guidelines in terms of how to implement the policy itself. What level of involvement are the communities, government, the role of government, but also that entailed us capacitating the officials also, mm. bearing in mind this policy was still foreign or new and officials needed to grasp how to implement it. And we had a national approach capacitating different officials 
I think that was early 2000s. And that was then um, capacity across the country having these workshops for them to implement the policy. So DAG has been in the housing and human settlement space, supporting communities, grassroots, but also engaging with the different spheres of government, whether it's local, provincial, national, also engaging with the private sector themselves because in anything that is relating to land and housing issues. Over the time, I think we continue our engagements um, with different programs that are within UTEG at this point in time. Let's talk about one of those programs specifically mm. and this Contractors and Developers Academy, I'm sure we'll touch on others as we go. Mm. But t- tell us a bit about what the CDA is trying to respond to. What is it that is emerging within parts of our cities? which is requiring a differentiated response. And as you say, Kuma, this idea of sort of advocating for regulatory reform, reform in in, in what way? When we step back a bit and reflect in terms of um, the housing delivery programs that are out there and also linked with the phenomena of the small-scale rental housing sector, I think in particular, we've seen the current delivery programs from the state, from government in a more what's this, a national approach or vision, that it has been more on um, the rental approach, whether it's through the delivery of community residential units, uh, CRUs, or social housing, or providing support to the social housing institutes. Um, another one, a form of ownership, which is the BNG type of fee delivery, also the PHP, but also linked with incremental housing delivery. So we've seen the different approaches from the public sector in terms of delivering affordable housing to its citizens. But within that, I think as a nationally, we've seen the emergence of the micro developments or developments at the back of someone's property. If I put this, when someone basically benefited from a state subsidized house and there's available space in the property and one would want to develop rental units or a more formal structure as compared to the traditional backyarders, which is a zinc, wenty type of a structure. Now we're seeing the phenomena of the small scale rental sector saying that we want to formalize our structures, having brick and mortar developments. This has been a phenomenon, I think, across the city, even um, nationally, that people are leveraging the use of their property to unlock its full potential by generating additional income through these small-scale rental developments, whether the back of their property or a house or a complete redevelopment of the site. There's different players that will get into the details of who are these players actually um, who are developing these rental units. We've seen these micro-developments taking place in different township areas, especially in particular, where they are responding to the need for housing. People are saying that the avoidance of going to stay in an informal settlement, I want a better, I think, uh, opportunity or housing opportunity as compared to an informal settlement. These guys are actually def- are responding to that need and the housing need. It's important just to emphasize this point. This is an entire new structure either that is replacing the existing rdp type house or is working alongside that so Mm. it's a completely different approach with a lot more i would assume capital investment that's implied for the person or the consortium that's investing in that is that that a correct sort of way to think about it definitely that is the correct way to think about it and also these developers themselves are the ones who actually um, wrestle up whatever funds they have in order to develop these um, rental units, uh, whether they are accessing it from personal loans, selling off their assets, or savings, or family contributions, or credit cards, or sort of financing. 
camel. We've tried to just now distinguish between certainly the backyard and this other this phenomenon of major rebuild. Are there other terms? Are there other terminologies that are being bandied around that can confuse the landscape? I think one word that comes to mind is umastandi. In provinces like Gauteng, they also use that terminology. So it will be someone who's a landlord. But uh, when you come to the Cape Town, you might find that um, like our organization as DAG, we call them homeowners. So yeah, I think it's just different terminologies across the different locations. But we do speak about, in a way, one thing. And also just to share that um, this phenomenon has been happening Years ago, uh, you'd have a lady who has her space in her backyard and she would just um, build rental units. And like throughout that years, we didn't recognize it as like a backyard, but I feel like now we sort of see it as something that we sort of make it seem it's new, but it's not. It's been happening. It's just like you said, it's evolving. So where people use um, like finances and also where people would buy like pieces of land to builds like at large scale, maybe your 12 units and up to 20 units. So yeah, I think it's just different what terminologies that we use. Yeah, I think it's also important for us to also just understand the different types of developers so that we also understand what their needs are at yeah, the different scales. Yeah. So Kuma, tell us a bit about the, what actually does the CDA do? Who does it do it for? And what are the components to that? It's an enterprise development program that seeks to capacitate and support emerging contractors and small-scale developers to implement small-scale rental or affordable developments. So our support or our program varies, I think, through the, the formal module training programs that is targeted for the contractors, the emerging contractors and the developers. We do also what is called information sessions or information sharing or education drive you can coin it to whatever. Basically, it's access to information. It's also in two tiers. One targeted for the contractors, the process of compliance. Why is it important to comply Comply with the in the construction industry bodies? What are the functions of these construction industry bodies? You name or NHPRC or um, National Housing Builders Regulatory Council. Yeah, you. Tongue twister there. Why is it important? When does one get to be affiliated or compliant with um, NHPRC? Just making that an as an example. And then the other component around the information session is for the homeowners and the property owners, basically. When they want to develop small-scale rental units, them understanding the process of compliance, who do you work with, the professional that you appoint, at what point in time, the process to get your building plans approved um, from council or um, local authority. Another component that we also impact on on the education drives was around tenants and landlord relationships. Right, right. Because we're operating in the rental space here and obviously there's going to be conflicts. I think ours was to say let's approach the Western Cape Rental Housing Tribunal to partner with us on these education drives because they sort of the mediators when these conflicts arise. The intention there is for the landlords to know their own responsibilities, both landlords and tenants and the avenues um, that are available if there are any issues that arise. I think another component towards the implementation of these developments, the technical support that we give to an individual. Basically, the individual will come to us to say, I want to build rental stock. That is the general request. 
And for us, we take them through a process where we do a site visit, analyze the available space, also to get an understanding what the property owner is seeking to develop. Do they have funds? Are they looking to source? Um, do they have a title deed? So all that information, we do the draft plans, the estimation, so on and so forth, up until the property owner is quite comfortable. And then also we direct them in terms of these are the avenues that you can go and source funding from and package that proposal that they can go and knock doors. And then also facilitation, um, where we facilitate the appointments of the different professionals, your built environment professionals, whether you're architect, planner, structural engineer, QS, you name it, um, that are involved in the value chain for them to submit the building plans to council. And also, one of the things that we've seen, the issue of built environment professionals, some of them not being transparent with the property owner or the developer now, where they want or they're not transparent in terms of feeding back where's their application in the system. Right. So we also provide that oversight on behalf of the, uh, the property owner to untangle any issues that are there or engage with the city if there's any issues or also engaging with the appointed professional to amend to make sure that the submission quantity is of the required standard by council. And then also the appointment of contractors. We do the project management, depending on the scale of the project though. And then the capacity building continues on an individual basis now, developing your lease agreement, having also encouraging the property owner to have a will and testament in place. Sure. Bearing in mind if that person gets finance from Umastandi or the microfinancier, for example, that loan has to be repaid even if in an unfortunate situation, then the person is encouraged to have a will and testament that to avoid any issues that uh, my brother was coming from elsewhere, saying that, oh, Pete uh, was a hard worker here in Cape Town. It's impossible for him <laughs> to owe anyone. Yeah. Hey, no, this is his property. Type of a notion. Sure. Um, but yeah. check, again, checks and balances, right? Checks and balances, basically. The documentation also. I think we found that is a, it's a useful tool when we are engaging um, with the different stakeholders that at least there's evidence. Um, we develop case studies on the projects that we supported and even proposing innovative solutions or mechanisms to enable the sector to scale up. So we document, document, engage, and then the whole advocacy and lobbying work under the banner of the organization as UDEG. In a nutshell, that is the CDA. It took me a while to understand sort of the differentiation between the contractor, i.e. the person building, versus the developer, which in DAG's thinking is the person or people who are activating a particular site. Do you want to tell us a bit about how, let's deal with the developers first. What does that community look like? What are their backgrounds? Or is it such a diverse, diverse range of people that it's, it's impossible to categorize? Throughout um, the years as DEG, we also had to like understand this phenomenon. I think that's where then the different categories of the developers came in. So if I would describe in simple terms a developer, so it would be someone who actually has that idea of building rental units. So you first need to have that objective and have that idea or concept then this is where then your contractor will come in. So the contractor will be someone who's actually implementing your concept. 
So then back to the developers, I think we already highlighted that there would be someone who's a home-owned developer. So someone who would build up to six units at the back of her property with the reasons or that objective of supplementing her income. Then you'd have someone who we call micro-developers. So this you'd find it's young folks, if I have to use that word because I'm young as well. This is where then you'd find someone who's a chartered accountant. I think we had a project in 2020 before lockdown where the CAs, there were five guys who came in uh, with that concept of building um, rental units and at scale, there was 15 units. What we did, we supported them. And just to share their background, it's um, CA individuals that went to school, but the limitation when it comes to them, they did not understand the property development space. So this is where the role of the CDA came in and supported them. You'd find that people who actually build or these developers have a bit of background and some do not have any background at all. So this is where then the role of the CDA plays in. And then back to the contractor. So I think we shared that CDA is in two parts. So we have a part where there's contractors. So this is where um, it's individuals who would go and register a company to um, a CIPC where they would um, register for a construction company so that they're in the business of building. could be schools, it could be rental housing. Yeah, so that's the difference between the two. So you need a developer to have that objective and idea in mind in order to bring the contractor to have like a job at the end of the day. Yeah. So it's like any development process, the same way that mm. if you're building a hotel in the middle of a central business district, you need a process. Mm. And, and the CDA was introduced to try and strengthen those processes, strengthen the understanding within that community. When Claudia did DAG, become aware of the phenomena and start responding to that. What We've heard a bit about the people's housing process and involvement there, but I mean, where, where did things really start to say, look, we actually need a dedicated program, which takes time, people, money, resources, etc., and it becomes an actual thing as opposed to an idea which is floating. Something that's important to say is that this practice of backyarding has been happening for many, many years, since the 80s and probably even before. But what we're really seeing now, which is very different, is that the standards of the rental units that are being built are really improving because there's demand for better accommodation, better affordable rental accommodation. So that's really what we've been seeing. And then the other point is that we've been seeing scale the amount of units that are being built are actually phenomenal. And this is things that we picked up while we were working on the ground as DAG and other housing processes. So the real, where this really came to a head was in 2015, where we were um, assisting the unblocking of an enhanced people's process project in Kailiche. This was really the construction of, Uma, help me here, 2,700? 2,173 houses. Yes. Not one more, not one less. Not one less. <laughs> That's a very important number and DAG. I, I know you've always been very precise. <laughs> what was really important for us as um, we started getting more and more involved in this process, recognizing that the real opportunity of the implementation of these housing projects was the emerging contractors. The emerging contractors that were building these houses and upskilling those emerging contractors. And through that project, DAG really realized the context of what are the needs of the emerging contractors. 
So to not just be labor, but to really enable the contractors to grow their businesses into sustainable businesses over time. And through that process, it was also understanding the needs of the developers, so the homeowners. In 2015, we really started understanding the context more and more. And then by 2017, we had kind of thought of this concept of the Contractor and Developer Academy. The response of government and other institutions or spheres of government, typically the municipalities where the rubber hits the road in terms of land use planning and regulations, you operate quite strongly. Within that sort of Cape Town space, what was the response initially of the, of the city? So whilst we're still understanding during that period that Claudia mentioned, what we were picking up or seeing especially was that the developers themselves, some of them were not um, submitting the building plans to council for approval due to numerous reasons. One, um, access to information or understanding that one has to go through this process. Mm -hmm. Other factors of not submitting was also the navigating through the planning systems understanding the processes um, and also the cost implications mm. that are incurred if you want to go through this route of developing these um, small-scale rental units. So it had a bit of a challenge from them in terms of getting the building plans to council for approval, but also the, the professionals that are also available, that access to information, which professionals do I tap into at what point in time? of which majority of the property owners or the developers themselves are not coming from the built environment profession. Most of them are coming from other faculties or other professions. Sure. And, and understanding the property development process was not something that was a, or a conversation around the dinner table, for example, of which we saw that as one of the issues. And then one of the issues that we're seeing on the ground, I think it was around encroachments, people building on the servitude or road reserves, I think there is a typical example of one area that there was not much enforcement or support given to the micro developers or developers in Danun in particular, for example, where there's evidence that people were just building without getting or going through the necessary processes and getting the necessary approvals. But then I think there is light at the end of the tunnel and it's not always doom and gloom. I think it was around 2020 where council approved a set of recommendations that will support the small-scale rental sector in terms of formalizing and, and support the scaling up and also untangle the red tape, so to say, sure. that inhibits or prohibits them from going through the planning processes. So the city said, um, city of Cape Town said, we want to support the sector. We see its contribution towards the housing needs your housing demand in terms of curbing that and we are supporting that and that's I think that was the most profound or I think out of the innovative approach from the municipality to see something that is outside of the normal boxes that are mentioned as saying let's support the private sector and let us be the city that is more facilitative in our approach in order to facilitate or support the sector effectively. Why is it so important that the regulatory processes are respected and followed in terms of a bigger picture. You've described the noon, and that's obvious to anybody who's driven past, whether it's there, I think of Alexandra up in Johannesburg, similar sort of development pattern where it seems almost anarchy. Anything is happening anywhere. Mm. And that obviously comes with its own challenges. We'll talk a bit about infrastructure, social amenities just now. But again, to the person who's investing, we made the point that 
there's a much bigger capital investment than the more temporary materials. So what's the risks of not doing it right? And again, that point that the CDA is trying to, to facilitate. What, well, when it goes wrong, what happens? One thing that comes to mind, because I'm a tenant, I'm just thinking around the issue of fire and just having a structural safe building. Because I don't want to be staying in a place where, let's say, there's fire and uh, we are not safe. So I think that's like one of the challenges if we don't um, submit our, build, our building plans to council, what will happen? And then the other thing, yeah, I know you said don't touch on infrastructure, but I think also that comes into play. You see areas in Danun where you'd see some pipes have burst, and then therefore this also has health implications on tenants themselves, especially let's say it's a micro developer who does not stay on that um, plot. So then the tenant suffers and then that relates back to the income that you generate from your rentals that also then affects you as a landlord because now you have to service back your loan from the finance institutions that um, assisted you to build the rental accommodation. So yeah, I think it starts with the tenant and then eventually affects you as a landlord. I think it also has implications on the city's tax and rates basis in the sense that if there's no correct evaluations of the property, bearing in mind these developers are adding more density into the sure. density in the neighborhoods, and it does not necessarily reflect, I think, on the rates bill and that there is an improvement on the site, yet the value of the property does not translate to what the investment was. So it also has that issues around uh, one the valuation of the property, but also for the city to recoup some income through rates and taxes if it's not properly facilitated or supported, if it's bypassing the system, so to say. And I'm just thinking of examples from when we went out and met with some of your, some of your participants and some of the community that you've worked with, whether it's through the CDA as the actual sort of program or as a sort of advisory. I'm thinking of instances where people have developed substantial developments, two-storey, 10, 10 units. And again, I think the point that the quality being of a very high standard, but not with building plans, not with the requisite zoning. There's now a challenge. And again, maybe Claudia, you want to come in here about the ability to leverage that asset and to ultimately use, because I guess there's one thing about a perpetual income from the rental that you generate. Mm -hmm. But if you want to sell that and transfer the property and you don't have those pieces of paper in your hand, the building plan approval, it becomes complicated quickly. Is that a fair, fair assessment? Yes, that's very fair. So I think we often, the word that's often used is compliance, right? We want compliance to kind of building norms and regulations on one hand to create healthy environments to live in, to make sure it's structurally sound. But on the other hand, you want a compliant building so that you can resell it, so it's an asset, and that's very important, and that it's accurate, accurately valued. If you haven't built within the kind of regulations and you don't have the right approvals, it might be severely undervalued because it's essentially accommodation that isn't seen Understood. You know, by the city. And I think the other thing that we often overlook as well is insurance. And you need compliance to be able to insure your assets. So um, I think those are very important points. The other fact that is very important, I think, when we talk about compliance is compliant with what? The rules and regulations that you're being compliant with. 
have to make sense to the context in which you're operating. And that's really what we saw and when we first got involved in this space is that the rules and regulations, they didn't make sense for the context, sure. right? So we have a piece of research that looked at the kind of compliance process for a six-unit development. And if you're non-compliant, so you're still building formal brick-and-mortar structure, and if you are compliant, it's your development, the same development, six units, will be two and a half times more expensive just because you were compliant. So this shows you the importance of the compliance environment making sense because there is so many benefits that can be unlocked through compliance, right? And that's how we get to this, this ideal of really what this is, is an opportunity for sustainable urban densification. But in order to get there, we really have to think very critically about what makes sense and really trying to, to make it work as a kind of a complex puzzle, but we really think that we can get there. And you're almost building that puzzle where you've got the borders, you've got a lot of the pieces, but the middle's missing. <laughs> Having to make it up and you've got an idea of what it's going to look like. The densities that we're seeing, the settlement wasn't designed for that in its first place. You talk about sustainability. You touched on the infrastructure elements. You've alluded to when the pipes fail, when densities are, are too high. But at the same time, I guess community facilities and so forth. Perhaps you want to touch on that. That bigger picture of sustainability and what the elements of them of that can be. We're facing a, a real challenge here where a lot of these neighborhoods were developed on a one plot, one house mm -hmm. model, right? So really each parcel of land was designed for one family to stay on. And what we're seeing is that often now we have maybe six households mm. staying on that same property. And then multiple properties on one road might be adding additional rental units. So you can see how this can create a real burden on the infrastructure. And I think what we really are talking about when we, we always say infrastructure and services, but we're really talking about the basics and sewage, access to water, and to some degree, access to electricity. And I think what we really need to be clear is that all of this small-scale rental units that we're talking to have these amenities. They're connected to the sewage system, the water system, the electricity system, you know. This is a, a real challenge. And we, in some neighborhoods, it's really becoming critical where the infrastructure might be close to failing. And um, But what's really important to note is that the responsibility of bulk services and putting in these infrastructure services is a responsibility of the local government. That's the municipalities because it's very large infrastructure assets that needs to go in. It's wastewater treatment plants, for example. So this is why it's very important that all stakeholders and all players in this puzzle are supporting the sector because the infrastructure problem is not a problem that can be solved bottom up. You kind of need the city and the local government to come to play as well. Of course, in terms of a sustainable neighborhood, you alluded to this, there's, there's other parts that need to, you know, hospitals, access to schools, really creating sustainable communities in the long term. And what's interesting there as well is that that's kind of where we come to the compliance side again. It's important for the rules to be so easy and simple to follow that people are incentivized to be mm. compliant, which mean they, means they can be counted. 
Then it starts reflecting in the city's budgeting systems, for example, in terms of how many schools do we need in this neighbourhood. And you can kind of see where I'm going with this. I guess it's the same sort of idea of the census. We know how important the census is and we know, you know, we're still operating on 2011 data, which is is almost hopeless in terms of really thinking about what a municipal budget and programme. You're alluding to massive multi-billion rand infrastructure retrofit programme for many of these areas. Yes, that's correct. So it really is the upgrading of the external bulk services and then an in-situ upgrading of a lot of the pipe work and the internal infrastructure, which is very, very expensive. Yeah, and I think that's where, Kuma, you've alluded to it, this idea that if you can rate the property the correct value, then clearly there is a degree of payback. And what you potentially see that these units and the property owners starting to at least pay a fair and market-related rate that can then start to su- subsidise mm. in one way the those inter- infrastructure retrofit programmes. Is that Again, is that a fair assessment? It is a fair assessment, Pete. But the only way that we can achieve this, I think it's, a, it's also a balance. I think understanding if you're putting investment into a particular neighbourhood, you would want to see some action done to see that there's change, essentially, from the perspective of the city. I'm putting it in the context between the developer and the city, who's, for example, now the developer is investing in a particular neighborhood, um, willing to contribute, but in a fair and just manner that won't prohibit them to be compliant. One component would be addressing the regulatory now, then getting to the infrastructure part of it it always trickled down to the DC conversation and development charge conversation. For the developers, it's difficult for them to to contribute upfront. That might be a stretch too far. It's a stretch too far. Let's look at alternative means to address this. And also bringing in the culture of um, rates rates, rates and property property tax payments. That component around education was around property ownership education is a missing factor in, in our current housing delivery programs. Understanding why do you contribute towards those rates? What effect does it give me? What benefits do I get? I think a component around that needs to be pushed forward and the national scale. This um, notion of saying that the taxpayers are subsidizing the non-payers notion or conversation that we cannot invest our funds in a non-tax-paying or non-rates-paying community. I think that notion is there. So how do we strengthen the education component of it to get people to start onboarding them as a process incrementally to start building that culture over time? I think that's what we want to see also. It's not going to be a complete change overnight. Sure. By virtue of us improving the infrastructure, then uh, everyone's going to pay. That component of education is constantly required. Um, not a once-off initiative, but a constant reminder as to why do you have to pay or have to contribute towards services and all of that. Yeah. One of the main components that is being alluded to is this sort of concept of trust. Trust between the community, trust between the government and in this, you know, most instances, the municipality. How is the CDA trying to bring together the different players and build that trust? I'll use the Danoon example as has come up a few times where you could argue there's been an absence of governance in that space. And, oh, by the way, now we want plans and we want you to comply. Mm. I can see there'll be a degree of pushback (laughs) to that, perhaps understandably so. But I mean, again, is that one of the main roles of of the CDA is to try and bridge that? And if so, do you think you're succeeding in that space? 
we're saying that it shouldn't just be the role of the CDA. The birth of the CDA is a direct response of a gap, so to say. But it is the responsibility of local government, one, to be facilitative in the approach, but also enforcing governance. I know it's a tricky situation. How can I be facilitative then enforce governance in the same conversation? But I think a more proactive approach from government to instill, I think, to start having that culture of compliance. And the assumption that everyone does not want to comply, it's not true. Understood. It's an assumption. I think that's the one part that we're seeing with the developers. They want to comply. Generally, in the areas that we've been working with or engaging with the developers, they want to comply. But it's just the process, it's inhibiting them, basically. Um, Yeah, I also wanted to add in on how does the CDA um, build trust. I'm just reflecting on the work that we have done throughout the years. And one of the um, services that we would provide is the Contract and Developer Academy CDA is through information sessions. I think Guma um, shared around the importance of our capacity building or education. So I think this is where our role has been as the CDA to just explain to people why do you need to submit your building plans to council? I think just one, having that information and understanding why I should do that and the benefits of doing that, I think that also then creates the culture of compliance. But I think that's what we have done. And like you were saying, Guma, we are not like the only players that should be doing this role. And also just wanted to share that we've been doing trainings. So from that information session, we would also like pick up some capacity gaps of the developers themselves and then now like tailor make training for them. So this is where it will be like a three months training where we capacitate them and we work in partnership um, with Francois Vruli from UCT. He also brings in his knowledge and experience in the property development space. So I think that capacity um, building initiative is very important when it comes to this phenomenon. Claudia, you want to come in? Yes, I think we're building a quite a comprehensive picture, but you alluded to this this idea of all the players and stakeholders that are involved in this complex puzzle. And it's more than, I think, just the contractors, the developers, the renters and local government. There's a whole environment of stakeholders where, for example, the finance or access to finance for the developers and the homeowners in order to build this rental accommodation is a key part in the puzzle. So we really also need financiers, microfinance institutions, and even the mainstream banks to come to the table and start talking, not just with us, but with the sector, the contractors and the developers themselves to start understanding that this is no longer a a niche market. And Mm. this is the fastest growing housing market and housing segment in South Africa right now. And I think next to the financiers, also the private sector has a really big role to play. So, I mean, this is the private sector, firstly. Mm-hmm. It's small scale, and it might be small scale, but it's still the private sector, and they have their own space within the private sector. And I think something that has been very encouraging, for example, in the Western Cape, is that this type of development has really been recognized by the Western Cape Property Development Forum your real large-scale developers. And I think that's something that's really encouraging in terms of building an inclusive private sector. And there's, there's real opportunities for mentorship. Also, I think 
learning both ways, not just one way, because we have so much to learn from this space. And that's only a, a few additional stakeholders. I think you have your universities as well. You have your students that play a really big role and broader communities as well. Two or three weeks ago, at least some of you around the table were up in Johannesburg in Gauteng talking about small-scale rental in a much broader audience and, mm. and, and participants. Perhaps you want to tell us a bit about what went down there and what some of the, if there were resolutions or recommendations that were made. Is that something you can talk to us about? I think for us, because we see the phenomena or the small-scale rental sector as one of the vehicles or instruments that could address or assist in the curbing of the housing delivery demand or housing demand, ours was to say, or being part of that um, national symposium, which was organized by the CSPCT support program, CSP, which is a component of the National Treasury and the support with the World Bank backing of this program. Basically, the program was looking at a national scale, taking examples or case studies of two metros, which is Cape Town, and a particular focus, I think, in Delft as a pilot study area. And then also having a lens in Ekuruleni, I think the neighborhood is called Titikeni, I think, Titikeni, yeah, also similar pilot project. It was trying to understand the context and a more national approach to have a framework that one, we could propose um, to national government in terms of what needs to happen. What's the function of national government in terms of unlocking infrastructure grants? for improvement, whether in internal or bulk infrastructure. I think another one in terms of the human settlements as a policy, um, having a policy that is dedicated for the small-scale housing sector to support it, whether through other means. And also the role of local government in terms of them reviewing their planning policy or zoning schemes or development schemes, depending on which area you're in. But it all boils down to the zoning scheme. What other instruments can they unlock within their means to support the space, whether it's through the reforms to enable the sector without even going through a larger rezoning, have those primary rights to implement to an extent these rental units or um, small-scale rental developments. But essentially, in a nutshell, it was getting one, the recognition, understanding the magnitude of this phenomena, the small-scale rental housing sector, in order to engage with the relevant departments and government at different spheres. You were there with the TDF, the Township Developers Forum, and that, I mean, that's something that you guys should take a lot of credit for, for mm. putting a sort of an umbrella with the, the developers. Tell us a bit about that. So within our work, we saw that most of the time the conversation, it's... It's usually the organization, tech, financiers, the state or the city of Cape Town or whatever department it is. But the conversation was about the developers and they are not, were not part of the table. So ours, whilst we're engaging with them and supporting them uh, on an individual basis, we encourage the developers now to form, I think, a forum or an association where they can discuss their own challenges and put forward solutions with the different processes and engage with the different processes that are taking place. We didn't want to make decisions on behalf of the developers because we're not developers at the end of the day. Let the developers who have for the first-hand experiences be part of the conversation. And yes, 
even that one, developers themselves, they are entrepreneurs, and we know the journey of entrepreneurship tends to be a lonely one, um, competitive um, environment. Now bringing different players who are not most likely sit around the same table amongst themselves and share experiences Trade secrets. Trade secrets, so to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was a, also an uphill to get them to trust us also, um, to trust one another. So we had to build that trust over time. And looking back, it was in 2021 in particular, where we started having these engagements with the developers on a frequent basis now, towards them establishing what is called the Township Developers Forum. We started the conversation with five people. Mm. Over time, they saw that there was momentum, people wanting to join. And it's usually on case-by-case situations when someone is impacted or has received a fine. Then they see the urgency that they need to be associated with a particular body or an association of a forum of some sort. Or some sort strengthen some, numbers, right? To strengthen yeah, numbers, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah basically. Sense. So we saw that momentum kicking up. I think up until... Last year, when effectively Township Developers Forum was established, I think I'm not sure whether, even if when we went to Joburg, uh, Korolehini, um, Waiteville, uh, Timbisa, um, we never heard uh, of a forum of developers, or Township Developers, so to say, or developers are operating within the space. So I think this is the first of its own having to establish that body. And that body also, as Claudia mentioned, that it's recognized also by the Western Cape Property Development Forum, and it's one of the committee members sitting at the Western Cape Property Development Committee as a member there. So I think it's an exciting journey, um, having the developers now themselves being part of the process and, and engaging and not being on the sideline. It's the same point you were making, Claudia. This is the private sector. Mm. It, it, it perhaps different, operates in a different way in terms of its critical mass, but in terms of its scale and its speed, it certainly seems to be making a massive difference. When you first started out, I recall you had a Facebook page, which was looking at uh, advertising the rooms and the rentals and so forth. Do you know what the figures are currently for the number of subscribers to that Facebook page? The Facebook page or group, it started in 2019. Um, I think I remember then we had 3,000 members mm. But now we have over 45,000 wow. um, people who either you're a landlord or a tenant or a property manager who's also advertising um, rental units that you manage. So, I mean, I, I think when I was working and studying with you guys here, I think that was at something like 15,000. So we're talking about in almost less than 15 to 18 months, double if not treble. That's incredible. I think, again, that's showing you the what the role that tech can also play ultimately mm. as in a portal that can put people in, in touch. But Claudia, your thoughts? Yeah, I think just to some amazing work that Kamuhelo is doing is then really using that Facebook page as a data source. So this is how technology really is creating data for us in a new way. I don't know, Kamu, if you want to speak about your work. I just wanted to share also the Township Developers Forum. They also have a WhatsApp group. So if you have like an issue as a landlord, you would post it on that right. WhatsApp group and they quickly respond and share networks and contacts. So that's another um, way of like using technology for quick communication. And to your point, Claudia, yeah, I think also as part of trying to understand the trends and the market of this phenomenon, because I don't think currently we have like... Um, 
would I say property 24 that looks at this phenomenon, I don't think we have it at the moment. So this is where we're also trying to fill in the gap of just having data that will also assist someone who's a developer who's trying to invest and they need to better understand what the market is calling for, uh, what the rentals are and which amenities are like surrounding that property. So yeah, that's what we're also um, doing, just to understand the trends, because you'd think Langa, when it comes to rentals, it will be over 3,000, but actually that's not the case, because you'd find that in terms of comparing it to Kailicha, you'd find that Kailicha has higher rentals compared to Langa, and one would have thought, because Langa is next to the CBD in Cape Town, um, you'd find those high rentals. So I think that's the story the data is telling us, and it's more learnings and and it's, I think, amazing and fascinating um, outcomes that are coming out from the data itself. Can we talk a bit about numbers of participants that you've had who've come through the, the CDA? How many contractors have come through? How many developers have you put through training? And are there other targets that are important to you, DAG, the trustees and the funders that are, are, are things that you typically track on an annual basis? I think over the last... Was it five years that we started tracking effectively? We've trained your over 100 contractors through the formal training program. That's where we cover, I think, seven modules um, that we deliver on an annual basis. That is more on your business administration, financial project management, interpretation of drawings and plans. That's what we cover during that, those modules. But also there's a component of mentorship after the training, after that. In terms of the developers or in other avenues where we capacitate everyone, um, whether in the construction or also um, looking to develop these rental units in your property, last I checked, it was above 300 people who attended our information sessions and education drives. And then in terms of our training program for the developers, we started the program, the training one, um, last, was it 2020? 2022, last year, and then we piloted it uh, with how many comes there? So we had 15 last year. 15 last year and then 17, so it's about 32 who are part of the formal training program right now as of this year. Essentially what we are doing with our training programs, it's a vehicle basically, one for the developers to undertake the process, to understand the process. There are, what we want to see at the end of it is that developers are actually implementing these rental projects or developments at different neighborhoods at different scale. And so them to understand the value chain and everything, the implications of property development, but also for the contractors themselves, they contribute towards um, sure. um, employment. And us in supporting the developers to one, conceptualize and implement the project means that they can tap into the contractors that we trained already. And then the contractors themselves to employ others and, 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 and yeah, it has that very virtuous cycle virtuous of, ecosystem. Of, of, yeah. Mm. And, and the point being, there's plenty of scope in this market. And just to add on top of that one, besides for us, whilst understanding and providing the support, we said, let's dive in, also get our hands dirty to understand the process. And then that component of us providing technical support to the developers themselves, I think we provided support to at least 16 because it's 18 developments right now that have yielded over 100, 105 units, I think 105 units so far, um, that we've supported up until completion. 
um, through the technical support. And most of those contracts or projects were done by the contractors that were part of the CDA. So that is what we actually want to see in terms of scaling up. And also in terms of yes, question around the targets and all of that, ours, it's not a government approach, so to say, that we tick the box that we trained 10 contractors a year, and then that's it. But we want to see out of that 10, for example, who is operational right now? Where can we support them towards them running a sustainable business? That's what we want to see. That's the impact. That's a measure of success. That's a measure of success that we want to see. And even with the developers, they are the conduit of us seeing housing on the ground, curbing the housing demand. So the, that's why we support these entrepreneurs, because they are a vehicle towards something else. I think it's a, it's a huge credit to the DAG team. And I say that as somebody who has been exposed to the work you've done and been invited in at one stage to try and understand the details. And it's no small thing that you've undertaken and the impact and the place that you find yourself, the ability to almost act as a bridge between mm an emerging community and the administrators. Mm. And by that, I, you're quite right to say it's not just the municipality, it's a much broader church. It is interesting that it was National Department of Treasury mm. that uh, were driving, driving that. Mm. I'd be interested to hear what the National Department of Human Settlements perspective is going forward and how they shape that policy space, which is, of course, their domain. More strength to you and the team, Kuma, Kamo, Claudia. It's been a real pleasure and again a privilege to go through the history and some of the successes and even updating me on some of the numbers and it's really really encouraging keep doing what you're doing and I say more strength to you and the team where can listeners find out more about the work that DAG is doing and specifically the CDA I'm assuming there's a website and so forth we've mentioned the Facebook page where can people find out a bit more about that maybe Camel from your side Thank you, Pete. The CDA, we have a website. We started the website, um, I think it was last year, but finally launched it this year. So you can find our website on contractordeveloperacademy.org.za and then also our Facebook page is called Affordable Places to Rent in Cape Town Townships, DEC also has a website, so it's deck.org.za. Thank mm-hmm. you. Because the CDA is uh, still a program within DAG, majority of our communications is done under the DAG profile on Facebook. Sure. Um, I think it's Development Action Group um, on Facebook. I think also on LinkedIn, it's Development Action Group. On Twitter, it's activism underscore DAG. Yeah. I think it's... So there's different options. There's different options and also Instagram, yeah. And you'll also find that you've talked about the case studies and so forth. People, I know you're always uploading reports there faithfully. So people, if you're interested in the academic side or the research, there's a lot of information out there over and above how to get involved if you're listening to this and actually want to look at the modules, look at the program. Mm -hmm. We will revisit this. This is more of a pause in our conversation. The idea is for us to come back in a few weeks' time and sit with some of the participants and hear their side of the story. I think what we've got here is the high level, is the overview and the uh, the bird's eye view of the CDA <laughs> from those who've been sowing the seeds <laughs> and uh, look forward to that. And then, of course, the idea of trying to have a bit of a round table virtual session mm. where we invite 
everyone who's participated and those who perhaps listened and have got questions to ask those questions and try and grow that understanding mm. of the sector, the opportunities and the work that you as the CDA are doing. But for now, thanks to the three of you. Absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed today. Good luck to you and the team. And we'll see you soon, soon. All the best. We hope you enjoyed this content of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform. That's at Talking Transfo and the number one. Or alternatively, via our email address, talkingtransformation101 at gmail.com. Thanks and recognition also to Tribal Need for allowing us to use their track, Flags, as our introductory and closeout music on this podcast.